I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is Angel. And I want to thank Fred for asking me to come share my experience, strength, and hope. And my experience is how I drank. My strength is God, and my hope is that you seize upon the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that you read the first 193 pages, which is counting from the title page to 164, that you read it, you do it, you stay, you don't drink under any and all conditions, so that you too can recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That has been my experience. And... Gee, I must really be in a blackout tonight. I was so excited about having a good dinner at the Hush Puppy restaurant. I didn't realize you all had read the traditions because every now and then I get to a meeting where they don't have time to read the traditions. Or everyone's still strolling in from the parking lot where everyone's trying to smoke a cigarette and meet true love so they can bang somebody after the meeting. <laughs> I know no one here did that. So that tomorrow you can have a hefty bag romance. Shuffle off to Buffalo in your little mix-matched house slippers. (laughs) Buy a plaid couch. By the grace of God and the fellowship and the principles and traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous on March 28th, I was 14 years sober, and that has very little to do with me and everything to do with the loving God who prevails in my life and with the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is the single most important factor in my life, and God is the director, and that's it. That's it. The program, as Jane said, was absolutely simple. It is so simple that it defeats a great many people. I was a functioning intellectual when I got here, which which means that I was educated far beyond my capacity to understand what the big book was talking about because the day before Alcoholics Anonymous, I was in my little house on the prairie. I lived out in Palm Springs. But I had a house on the prairie and my dogs and my bottle of fine California natural jug wine. And the day before Alcoholics Anonymous, I was reading the Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant, underlining and making margin notes, drinking wine. And I went from being a daily drinker to a daily non-drinker by the grace of God and the simple fact that a woman I knew came into my antique store on March 28, 1979, and said, what's wrong with you today? And I said, you know, Priscilla, my life is over. And I might as well have said mayonnaise is $1.29 a jar. That was just about how I thought my life was over. You know, screwed. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I have been sober four months in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think there is an outside chance that food is your problem. And I looked at her and said, you are absolutely right. What should I do? And in that moment of clarity, in that moment of God's grace to me, when I said, you're right, what should I do? The obsession to drink was removed. I have not had the next drink since another sober member pointed out to me that booze was my problem. And Priscilla was also a functioning intellectual, so she did not give me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. She gave me games, alcoholic play. She said, go home, read this, don't drink. There's a ladies' meeting on Friday morning, which was two days away. And I followed three consecutive directions for the first time in my life because I will argue with a box of cake mix. 
Betty Crocker is a moron and couldn't possibly know how to do it my way, so I will do it my way. You know, I will argue with anything. And I went home and I read Games Alcoholics Play. It said I could think, not drink, and that was news to me. So I got out my recipe card file, which was full of empty cards, because I'm not housebroken, but I had a recipe box of cards in it, a wedding gift from somewhere. My little recipe cards, and I wrote out, you can think, not drink. You've been drinking, not thinking for years. I put it up on the kitchen cupboard. And I didn't drink, and I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got on my little green and white polka dot dress. I really should have saved my costume for my first meeting. I know several people in Los Angeles who saved the outfits that they wore to their first meeting and wear them on their birthday. <laughs> and I had my little chartreuse and white polka dot dress, and I got my stuff on straight, and I had a matched pair of hose, and that was far out. <laughs> I went off to my first meeting, and it was downstairs in a bank building, and I quickly determined that all women's meetings are downstairs in bank buildings because we're sharp people. And I thought I would just slide in there unnoticed, that I could just sit down and no one would know that I was a newcomer. And I was just, I walked through those doors. First of all, the walk to the bank, it was two blocks from my antique store down Palm Canyon Boulevard, and that walk was the longest most solitary, lonely walk I've ever taken in my life. And I walked down these stairs and through these double doors into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I knew I was home free. I knew that I was home free. I just, it was like, oh, I'm in the right place at last. Finally. Jeez. I was 34 years old and never had been in the right place at the right time with the right person with the right outfit on drinking the right drink. I never had been in the right place. I walked into that meeting. I sat down. They went around the table and identified. And when it got to me, my name is Angel and I'm an alcoholic. And it was the first honest thing I said in years because I lied to you about the time of day. Really. I just, if I sat down next to you on a bar stool, I told you everything I knew and then I started making up stuff to make it more interesting. And I really didn't have to because I have lived my life on the wild side, thank you very much. I have always been perceived. I'm not quite dressed in my schoolteacher outfit tonight. <laughs> but I committed every felony known to man and violated the Ten Commandments dressed in a navy blue dress, a string of pearls, and dumb earrings. I was always perceived to be a schoolteacher. And after I took the first drink, I did anything that crossed my mind, twice, usually. I did everything my parents told me I had not ever better do. Those were the most fun. <laughs> I grew up with a mother who did this to me all the time, and I will tell you what, I was a darling little girl. I really was. I was a cute little girl. I look at pictures of myself as a child, and I had golden ringlets and blue eyes till I was about eight years old, and then I turned into a green-eyed monster, but... Uh, I was this cute little girl, and I got straight A's in school and played the piano, and I begged my mother for tap dancing lessons. <laughs> and this was kind of how my childhood went. I begged my mother for tap dancing lessons. She bought me those stupid little black patent leather tap shoes, but she didn't have the taps put on them. She must have known something. And I went off to tap dancing school at about the age of nine, and I ain't got rhythm. I do not have rhythm. I couldn't get the simplest tap dancing step there was. It was just like, geez. This is awful. I don't get it. <laughs> and I got home and I told my mother, I can't tap dance. And she said, you will wear those little black patent leather shoes until you outgrow them. You will wear them for your dress-up shoes. 
And you know what's really degenerate? I hated those shoes, and I still always have a pair of black patent leather shoes, a little girl grade rivets on them. <laughs> and remember tap dancing. The view from the womb was that I was going to be an exotic neurotic. Really, the view from the womb was grim, and my mother taught me how to drink like a southern gentleman. My parents were not bar drinkers. They stood at home at the kitchen sink and drank bourbon straight. Jim Beam lived in the refrigerator. My mother had a fifth of southern comfort in the cupboard with the peas and corn. <laughs> now, I got drunk the first time when I was 13, but I do remember that my mother made these dreadful little Christmas cookies called bourbon balls. Now, there's something attractive. <laughs> Little chocolate round cookies with bourbon and then rolled in powdered sugar, and she kept the family stash in a mayonnaise jar. And I can remember when I was small that I would sneak bourbon balls out of the refrigerator. But uh, all major events in our household went down at the kitchen sink. I lost my virginity standing at the kitchen sink. It was so exciting. <laughs> I was drunk. And 45 years old. No. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Anyway, I got drunk the first time when I was 13. I, you know, I grew up in a lovely upper middle class home, and my father hated everyone equally. We fought the Civil War every Sunday over dinner because my mother was from southern Missouri and my father was from northern Missouri, and I grew up in Long Beach, and my mother still flies a Confederate flag on the kitchen door. And... My father liked the Klan, so that's the kind of this rigid, hideous upbringing. And I went to church and sang in the choir, and but we had a gay family doctor. Now I knew this at the age of 13. I had it wired. I knew Wesley was double gated, <laughs> and I used to tell my mother that there was something different about the doctor. She said, "Don't ever tell your father; he'll never go back." <laughs> And we used to be social with the doctor and his roommate, and we used to all drink together. But at this one big Christmas party that the doctor had, he had this huge colonial mansion with silk fabric walls long before it was fashionable, and Pierre, the decorator, had a guest room. <laughs> anyway, we went to this big party. And at the age of 13, I was precocious also. I was really a little monster. I was this hateful little monster who got straight A's, A's in school and did all the kissy notebooks that all the other kids just hate your guts for. And I went to this party, and I was infatuated with the doctor's roommate. And I walked right up to Carl, and I said, do you sleep in the guest house? I hope, I hope, I hope. And he, he said, no, I sleep with the doctor. Armed with the truth, I got drunk. And that set up the pattern for the rest of my drinking and into sobriety. Men who are not interested and drinking to change my perception of reality. Because drinking did for me on that day what it did for the rest of my drinking career. It took me straight out of my mind and it altered my perceptions just enough that life was bearable. It skewed my perceptions another half a bubble out of plum. I drank always for the effect. I have not ever had a social drink. I don't know what social drinking is. I am not interested in social drinking. But, you know, social drinkers let booze evaporate in the glass. <laughs> social drinkers let ice cubes water it down. 
And I was thinking driving up here, you know, I gulped beer. How do you sip a beer? Gulp. And I drank bourbon straight. That's how I learned how to drink. It was on bourbon straight. You know, don't mess with it and anything else. And I went off to college. I have, what I know with hindsight, after you've been here a few 24 hours, you get 20-20 hindsight, which is so fabulous. You know, it's like there have always been Burma shave signs in my road of life. Those red signs that say, warning, beware, and he's a liar, cheating, a thief, and meow. I have always driven by every Burma shave sign in my life, just like that. And then I've had to back up and repent at my leisure and read what the sign said. <laughs> About 20 miles an hour ago. Oh. Anyway, what I know today is that I was an alcoholic from the gate, that my body was hopelessly loaded against me from the very start because my parents are alcoholics. Alcoholism gallops through both sides of the family tree within the designer genes. Who knows? But it gallops through the family tree, and I believe today that I was born with a genetic predisposition to a fatal malady called alcoholism. I was born with that fatal malady, an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind that when I take the first drink, the allergy that I have to alcohol kicks in, and I am compelled to drink until I'm done. Not until I've had enough. I never did have enough. Because what's enough? What's enough food? What's enough love? What's enough money? What's enough power and prestige? I have never learned the meaning of the word enough. I drank till I was done, which means that I passed out. Right before I'd had enough. And for years there was an enormous capacity to drink, and at the end of my drinking, some days my little body really played tricks on me. Some days I could have one glass of rosé on the rocks and be flat-ass drunk, and other times I could drink and drink and drink, and nothing would happen and nothing would relieve it. Nothing would skew the perception, another half a bubble out of plum. But I believe that I was an alcoholic from the gate without the opportunity to be a daily drinker at the age of 13. I had to wait till I was 22 and trashed my first marriage so I could drink the way I wanted to drink. Because when I was 22 years old, my husband was sent to Vietnam. I was a coat and suit buyer for Bullock Department Store. I had New York buying trips. I was a daily drinker, and I had a boyfriend named Louis Bagadona. Kind of how I ran. I ran with the mafia, and I ran with the window trimmers. And had a fabulous time in either group. <laughs> I ran my life to the ragged edge. I simply ran my life to the ragged edge, and I loved to be the center of attention, negative or otherwise. I knew every gay bar on Sunset Beach and Surfside and Seal Beach and everywhere else. I loved to be the only woman in a gay bar full of men. I can have more fun in a gay bar than any woman I know. I would sun pool tables and compete with guys in black leather jock straps and have another beer. What could be more fun? What could be absolutely more fun? And that's how I live my life. I ran with the mob and the window trimmers. And my husband came home from Vietnam, and I wasn't home. I forgot. It had slipped my mind that my husband was coming home from Vietnam. I know that he wrote and told me. I didn't read his letters, though, because they made me feel guilty and full of remorse, because I couldn't stay home and be a faithful wife. And the weekend that he came home from Nam, I had played at somebody else's house. I'd slept over, and I went straight to work from someone else's house on that Monday morning, and I got to work on Monday morning, and a man called me and said, This is Dan, I'm home. And I said, Dan who? And he said, this is your husband speaking, and I am home. And I said, oh, honey, I'll be right there. Jeez, great, you're home. <laughs> How did I? Sorry, I wasn't there. 
And I set a new land speed record from Pasadena to Laura Long Beach and stopped and bought a huge bottle of champagne on the way. And I got home and I tried to talk my way out of where I'd been for the last year and why I couldn't stay home and be a faithful wife and not be a daily drinker and run with all these crazy characters that I ran with. And we got a divorce. That was the name of that tune. I couldn't talk my way out of it. I tried several, you know, countless main attempts. I tried several times before the divorce was final. And I remember one night I begged him to come over for dinner. So let me explain it one more time, please. And that afternoon I went drinking with the Van Heusen shirt salesman in Belmont Shore. And I got drunk on my ass and I got home and he was, true love was there. And I sat down in front of him cross-legged on the rug to try and explain myself one more time. And I passed out. I just went over sideways, cross-legged. And I came to two hours later, and there was a little note by my head that says, You make me sick. No, I make myself sick. What's new? Anyway, we got a divorce. My first husband was a good man and a kind man, and he drank daiquiris now and then, one at a time. He was not an alcoholic. He he got trapped in my hostage maneuver. because I was desperate to get away from my parents. And I married a man, and I, I had some good motives, and most of them were bad motives. And when we got a divorce, he married a lovely housebroken woman and went on with his life. He's a world travel designer today and has grown children, still married to the same woman, still probably drinks a social daiquiri now and then. My blessings to him. He went on with his life. And I went on drinking. I went on drinking. I started at the top in the clothing business with my career at Bullocks, and I drank my way out of the clothing business in eight short years. It was like I was amazed before I was halfway through. I just drank my way through it like a dose of salt, and I wound up when I was 28 years old managing this tacky dress store in North Laguna Beach. Gee, I better get sober. In North Laguna Beach, hanging out with a retired health angel from Louisville, Kentucky, named The Bear, who had a big electric glide. And I, he was a pharmaceutical rep, and I was kind of hoping he'd turn into a real estate developer or something else. And I determined that things with the bear weren't going well, and I thought I'd better find a second husband. Because all through my drinking career, it never occurred to me that booze was the exact nature of my problem. I never once connected booze with anything that went on in my life. And I was sitting at the orphanage bar one night in Laguna on Coast Highway in the early 70s, and here came Man of My Screams. He walked up and handed me a daisy. And I, my quick alcoholic mind said we were from the same ethnic background. My parents would be pleased because I like exotics. And we got married after he got a divorce. And I married a man who drank like I drank and ran as I ran and played as I played. And he today is wandering the street. He is wandering the streets, the human wreckage of my past, because he never had a desire, honest or otherwise, to get sober and clean up his life. But uh, when I met him, he was hip, slick, and cool. I love guys that are hip, slick, and cool. I love guys in the back row at AA meetings with their eyes on tilt. I don't do anything about it today anymore. I don't walk right up to them and talk to them anymore. You know, it's like sitting in the shoe section at the AA meeting with the slippers, sneakers, and loafers. Anyway, he was hip-slick and cool. And what I found out after I got sober was that any man that I perceived to be hip-slick and cool is a liar, cheat, and a thief, but that's okay. I married him. And I'll cut to the chase on this second marriage. After six months with a stepchild and stuff, which was more than I could handle, I became a housewife drinker for six months. 
And several years down the road, when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not identify with housewife drinkers. I smugly was contemptuous of them that I had not sat home and some Chanel natural with spoolies in my hair, sucking on a bottle of wine, watching soap operas. It took me a while to realize that for the first six months of my second marriage, I had done the very same thing and tried to be a stepmother and cook and clean house. And all I could do was drink all day because I don't get housework. It's boring, endless, and repetitive, and dust after five years gets no worse. So, you know, I... <laughs> so after six months of doing that, I suggested that we go in the antique business. He was a liar, cheat, and a thief, and I knew all about antiques because my parents had collected antiques and dragged me in and out of antique stores for years. It's like I learned at the age of two, don't touch antiques. I never learned don't touch someone else's husband, but... I learned not to touch antiques, so uh second husband and I went into the antique business, and the long and short of it was we were dishonest antique dealers, and we had stores in uh, Laguna, San Francisco, and Palm Springs. We dealt in cash carry guns and dealt in stolen property, and we thought we were hip, slick, and cool together. We were Bunny and Claude. Bunny and Claude. The only two people I know that got a hot car, it must have been a bad year for Monte Carlo's. We got a hot car and couldn't deal it. The only two people I knew who couldn't move a hot car, we drove it cross country to Long Island, couldn't sell it, and drove it home again. I can't get rid of it. The car became like this albatross around our neck because that was how inept we basically were. How inept we basically were. We drank. We just drank. We drank every day. Every day we drank. It was, and we had the Saturday night fight every night of the week. Because I met a man who, after I had the last word, he landed the last punch. And I know what it is to be beaten up and be drunk and not be able to get away. And I know what it is to have that husband take off for Puerto Rico with some chick named Louise and come back six months later and tell me that he's going to claim what's his as a husband and be beaten and raped for four hours and be too demoralized, too pitifully and comprehensively demoralized and drunk to go and report it to the sheriff. That's what happens to drunk women. In the last six months of my drinking, I made some awful decisions that only alcoholics seem to be able to make because one always has to make a decision about where the booze money is coming from. I had a career that supported my drinking career. I have always had a career that paid for my drinking career because no man has ever done pickup on me and given me the little Volvo station wagon and the picket fences that I'll stay home, honey, and here's a thousand a week to do with as you wish. I have always been self-supporting through my own contributions, and in that last six months of my drinking, the antique business was falling apart around my ears because I didn't have time to go out and deal in stolen property and sit in the store and do it all myself, and the money started running out. And I had this little house on the prairie, and I had three dogs, and I got a town dog out on my little house on the prairie. I got this darling Dalmatian named Freckles. And my other dogs ran loose in the desert, knew not to eat tainted rabbits and stuff, but Freckles got into a tainted rabbit, and there was a Saturday where I had a few glasses of wine and took a good look at Freckles. Freckles. Freckles was outward bound. And I knew that I could not afford to take the dog to the vet to be put to sleep and buy booze. Oh. So I killed the dog. That is what drunks of my type do. We make awful decisions. I even buried the dog downwind. I, I buried him all wrong. And for months I had nightmares that that Dalmatian was going to come up out of the oleanders and get me. And it shut up. And I had another drink. And I had another drink and I buried the dog and I had another drink. Because I was dying and didn't know it. Those was the nature of my problem and I didn't know it. 
not until another sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous carried the message to me. Booze causes alcoholism. That's it. I've had people tell me in recent years some amazing stuff that causes alcoholism. Drinking alcohol and my body's allergic reaction to alcohol is what caused my alcoholism. Eating too many hot fudge sundaes and doing up baby aspirin did not cause my alcoholism. Me ingesting ethyl alcohol and my fatal allergy to it is what caused my alcoholism. When I was doing Alcoholics Anonymous, 20 sober women downstairs in a bank building, there was not an MFCC, a PhD, or some old broad with more degrees than a rectal thermometer sitting there. 20 sober women told me on that day everything I needed to know about staying sober one day at a time for the rest of my life. Don't drink. Don't drink. Even if your ass falls off, don't drink, no matter what. If you drink again, you'll die. They said that to me. If you drink again, you'll die, honey. That single sentence held me in good stead for 14 years and a few months. If I drink again, I'll die. Certainly we're all going to die, but if I drink again, I'll die an alcoholic death and who knows where or when or how. But if I drink again, I will surely die an alcoholic death. They told me to get a copy of the big book, a copy of the 12 and 12, to get a sponsor, to take the steps, do not get emotionally involved for the first 14 years. <laughs> Fine for them. I am living proof of staying sober. Two years and nine months on self-will run riot, doing the steps my way in the order that I chose. Going to three meetings a day at the Alano Club in Palm Springs, saying, sure, I'll do it my way. I might as well have had Frank Sinatra singing double time back up to my life for two years and nine months. I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. But I stay. I stayed. I claimed my uncomfortable folding chair in smoke-filled sanitariums filled with winos, dinos, and bing bats, and I stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous. Unfortunately, in Palm Springs, there was no place else to go. Yeah, every now and then I'd get torqued around at a meeting and I'd go jump in my old Cadillac and go whipping out of the parking lot. <laughs> there wasn't any place else to go. So I'd drive around the block three times, smoke half a pack of cigarettes, and go back to the meeting. I sat in meetings and I listened to old-timers and I thought, that old fart says that same old story. One more time, I'll launch in a glass ashtray at his head. I hope it embeds right here. I can't stand to hear him tell that story one more time. I'll jump across the table and I'll kill him. Someone lovingly one day suggested to me, you know, dear, the people that you dislike the most when you are new, if you manage to stay, will be the people that you love and value the most four or five years down the road. The people that I couldn't stand when I was new in Palm Springs, most of them are dead now, (laughs) no. What's awful is that's the truth of it. All those old-timers sitting at those meetings when I was new are gone, except for the man who's been my mentor these last 14 years. And the man that I asked to to help me along this uh, road of happy destiny, I saw him in a meeting when I was probably about, I guess maybe six months sober, I guess. And he had snow-white hair and he had on Ray-Ban sunglasses at the afternoon meeting. And I thought, this guy's so weird, I think I'll go talk to him. 
And I sat down with him, and he always identified himself as a recovered alcoholic. And at the time, he was five and a half years sober, and I was in my first six months. And I ran around with Don day in and day out, and he talked to me, and we talked until two and three in the morning in coffee shops. And he said to me every single day, there is no defense for your own insanity. I was an English major in college, and I go home and try and diagram that sentence. I didn't understand what he meant, there's no defense for your own insanity, because I was so nuts I didn't get it. I just didn't get it because I'm a vision of doing the steps my way. What I did was I was content to admit that I was an alcoholic, no doubt about it. My life was not unmanageable. Don't you dare bother asking. I glossed over step two entirely because I had crazy and alcoholic in an either-or situation. Either you're crazy or you're an alcoholic. And I was so delighted to know that I was an alcoholic because that meant I wasn't crazy. So I went on to step three, and that suited me fine. At my first meeting, they talked about God, and I went, thank God. I was so relieved. I was I was delighted because I violated everything I'd ever been taught in Sunday school and by the Ten Commandments for years. So I was it was just fine that they talked about God. I was I just said thank God for the inventory. I sat down with a Hazelden inventory guide. I wrote it out. I read it to myself. I congratulated myself on my honesty, and then I experienced Hazelden's promises. And if you want to experience somebody else's promises other than the promises after the fifth step in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, by all means, do somebody else's inventory form. Eventually, you will get to do it the way it's laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. But, you know, if you want that exercise of utility, be my guest. Get out the 18-pound Crayola and start in. I went on to step six and seven. I had some characters in my life with noticeable defects. Eight and nine, I'm sorry, I puked on your shoes and bothered with your husband and got caught. And then I went on to chapter six, which I read as into activity. I thought it was into activity. What it is is into action, but I thought it was into activity. So I was on the board of the Alano Club and the board of a men's recovery home. And just a whirling dervish in the desert. People used to see me at three meetings a day, and I got sicker and sicker and sicker because I was unwilling to surrender to another sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and take the steps the way they're laid out in the big book. I was absolutely unwilling because I was far too smart. My second year of sobriety, I got all my college transcripts. I was going to go back to school and be a counselor. I was going to go say Ford Motor Company. I was going to major in industrial psychology and say Ford Motor Company for the ravages of alcoholism. I finally called up Don and told him that was what I was doing. And he said, you must be crazy. He said, forget it. First of all, why would you go study something that you've been living all these years? You're already an expert. And he said, secondly, Tradition 8 says that we define professionalism as the counseling of alcoholics for fear for hire. You will violate the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous if you do that. And I went, oh, I'm so sorry I mentioned it and I won't ever mention it again. And I haven't. Every now and then I try and think of a way to do it without violating the tradition, but... Because, you know, it says in the book, we have our little schemes and designs. There's, I've got a scheme a minute. I've got the right answer, but the dishonest answer comes up first. I've always got another bright idea. Turn off those bright ideas. When I was nine months without drinking, I, of course, spotted him from across a crowded meeting. He was tall and Mexican, had a stocking cap that said, get my drift on a sportster in the parking lot, and I was breathless with desire. I listened to him share several times to make sure he had what I wanted, and I was willing to go to almost any length to get it. And 
I don't speak the language either, but I've never let small obstacles like that stand in my way. I had a vision for us. I thought we would be the bilingual Mr. and Mrs. A of the Coachella Valley carrying the message to the great unwashed off the back of his hog. And we had a lot of romance. We have both lived through it. He's uh, 17 years sober. I'm 14 years sober. He got married last year. I was so annoyed. I'd waited 13 years for him to call me. I was awfully distraught. Uh, anyway, what finally happened was two years and nine months of not drinking, doing it my way, going to hundreds of meetings, getting sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker, treating the symptom at the expense of recovering from alcoholism. I treated the symptom by not drinking, and I ran around the desert with raging untreated alcoholism. With two years and nine months sitting in my little antique store dressed all in black on a New Year's Eve, I had out the 38, and I was ready to kill myself stone cold sober. It had not turned out quite the way I expected. With dishonest motives, I took right action. I went to a Spanish marathon meeting. <laughs> well, we make progress, not perfection. Anyway, at this meeting, this old boyfriend sponsor was the main speaker, and he talked about taking the inventory the way it's laid out in the big book and the whole thing, the whole deal. And I walked up to this man after the meeting. His name was Jose Chacon, and I said, I used to date someone you sponsor. I'm in deep shit and need a whole bunch of help now. And I surrendered to another sober member of Alcoholics and I was an old Mexican man with 17 years of sobriety who I thought couldn't possibly have an answer for a brilliant intellectual like myself. And I sat down and did the inventory with him and I did the stuff with Jose and he saved my life. He pulled me back from the edge. He pulled me back from the edge on the day that I would have killed myself. And he saved my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there have always been people who have saved my life here. And it is not the ones who pat me on the head and say, just keep coming back here. Those people will kill me, really. Stay away from them. The people who have saved my life, because this isn't a, you know, a laughing hee-hee-ha-ha deal around here. This is life and death for alcoholics of the hopeless variety. I better be talking to someone who's a real alcoholic, who's taken the steps, who practices the principles and traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous and all of their affairs to the best of their ability. I better be talking to someone who's done that. My life depends on it. When you talk to me, your life depends on the fact that I have taken the steps and I live by the principles and traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous because today, today I go into meetings and I don't know where I am some days. I get into alleged A meetings. I get into phony A meetings. I get into dual purpose meetings and I just crawl right up the wall and jump off ceilings and stuff because my life depends on one drunk sharing with another. That's our singleness of purpose. Bill Wilson, when he wrote this deal, wrote out six words. Admission, inventory, confession, restitution, prayer, and service. Those are the 12 steps. To admit on a daily basis who and what I am on a daily basis to do an inventory, to look at my assets and my liabilities, who am I pissed off at, what am I afraid of, what's my sex conduct, on a daily basis to confess it to God, myself, another human being, on a daily basis to make restitution, to say I'm sorry, to make silent amends through changes in my behavior, on a daily basis to pray only, pray only for knowledge of God's will for me, and he gives me the power to carry out his will. And the powerlessness that I had back at step one is given back to me. Because if I am praying for God's will, he gives me the power to carry out his will. If you have powerless on your bumper sticker or something, rip that stupid thing off. Unless you haven't taken the step, of course. You want to be powerless forever, it suits me. You know, this is a deal for people who want it. There are a number of people who need it, but this is a deal for people who want it. 
desperately alcoholics of the hopeless variety and to be of love and service in Alcoholics Anonymous. I am on the firing line every day. I stand up for Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, it's the pioneers that take the air. And I recently participated in a singleness of purpose workshop at the Burbank Club. Three of us presented this workshop and then there was questions and answers. And 300 people attended because, you see, there's a movement. There's a movement of of men and women who have lost the ability to control their drinking. And it's called Alcoholics Anonymous, one drunk sharing with another, an anonymous spiritual fellowship. Anonymous spiritual fellowship of men and women who have lost the ability to control their drinking. And those people who have lost the ability to control their drinking are trying to reclaim Alcoholics Anonymous for alcoholics. We are not into, I am not interested in hearing about overeating, drug addiction, gambling, workaholism, or any other deviant moral and social behavior. You know, we are not a big beach umbrella on the shores of life. This is a program for drunks. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is written by drunks, for drunks, about drunks. I encourage any of you seated here tonight that if alcohol is not your number one problem, because what I address here is my number one problem, and that's alcoholism. That if alcohol is not your number one problem, I so encourage you to seek out the 12-step fellowship that specifically addresses your affliction so that you can get the identification, that common bond of the shared experience. And I will wind it up quickly by giving you my object lesson of this. When I was three years sober and moved into Los Angeles, I called up an old boyfriend that says that we clear away the wreckage of our past. We don't phone him up and say, how's trip? But I called up an old boyfriend, and he was locked in a merciless addiction, freebasing cocaine, and I sat and watched him freebase in front of me with that little settling torch. I was fascinated with the mechanics of it, begging him to come to Alcoholics Anonymous with me at three years sober. Begging a man freebasing cocaine to come to AA with me, I knew that we had an answer for him. I was so determined to get him sober, and he was locked in a merciless addiction. I gave him a second edition copy of the big book. I thought that would have an impact on him. And he was dying in front of me. He threw the big book at me and said, I'm not a drunk like you. Get out. Fine. And I said the F word. Now, what I missed in all of that was, I am responsible that if I cannot carry the message to another suffering human being, and speak the language of that human being who's suffering and dying in front of me, I owe that person the decency to carry them where the message is, to carry someone to the message. I can't judge whether they'll get it or not, but I have that obligation and that responsibility. And I walked out on a man I'd been in love with, in love with and never bothered to say, let me take you to Narcotics Anonymous. Please, I'll go with you to Cocaine Anonymous. Maybe you'll hear something that you can use. Maybe you can recover here. He died. He died of an overdose. And it took me several years to get that I might as well have signed his death certificate. Because I am responsible. I know better. And I didn't do better, but I knew better. And I didn't do better, and another suffering person died. I have a response. Each one of us has a vital responsibility. We are dealing with people's lives, fragile human lives. Alcoholism is life or death to the alcoholic. 
I beg of you to be Phyllis and Pearl from the very start. Thank you.